We are joined today by Sultana Isham and Denise Frazier. Sultana is an award-winning film composer, violinist, writer, and scholar based in New Orleans, merging minimalist pedagogy with the electronic. Denise is assistant director of the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South, uh, through which the Third Coast Residential Learning Community is hosting Sultana's lecture at noon on Thursday, October 1st, titled Blood Flow, Memory and the Racialization of Sound and Gender. And we'll get more into how to access that shortly, but Sultana and Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Theo. So first, Denise, if you wouldn't mind just giving a little overview of uh, the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South and the Third Coast Residential Learning Community. Uh, absolutely, and I, I'm just so grateful that Sultana is here, and, and thank you for again for inviting us. Um, so the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at Tulane University is an interdisciplinary place-based institute, and it was founded in 2011, and we are underneath the umbrella of the School of Liberal Arts. Um, we are dedicated to um, perpetuating and celebrating the distinctive cultures of New Orleans and the Gulf South, and we identify um, those cultures as residing within the bioregion stretching from Florida to Texas. Um, so we focus on the coastal states, um, but we also go international as well, exploring areas of Latin America, the Caribbean, and Africa that have ties to this region and have influenced its distinctive history and traditions, as well as other Delta cities and coastal wetland areas around the world. That share geographical traits. <laughs> uh, the center's mission rests on three pillars, which are research, teaching, and community engagement. And all of our programming is based on the belief that the more we understand where we are, the more fully we can engage in our democracy and collective destiny. And um, I also want to talk a little bit about um, the connection that we have with Third Coast. Um, Third Coast is a residential learning community that um, is based in Sharp Residence Hall. And um, this will be our third year of doing Third Coast. It's um, really been a labor of love for us um, because it's one of our few opportunities that we get to work with students. Um, so we basically examine the Gulf South region's tenuous urbanism, the changing climate and rising seas through place-based learning. And, um, it's only for first year students, but we do welcome anyone to our events. Um, students and other participants in Third Coast residential community, learning community activities will gain an insider understanding of how culture and environment intertwine in this um, fertile region and how it connects with other regions around the world. And um, so yeah, um, that's basically do what we do in Third Coast. It's a mixture of learning from wonderful scholars um, like Sultana, um, Tulane faculty, and other faculty from different universities here and beyond, as well as scientists. And, um, and then we have fun. Sometimes we walk, sometimes we go to festivals, and uh, that's uh, Third Coast. Great, thanks so much. Um, and Sultana, I don't, I don't know if there's anything else you would like to add to, to my introduction, uh, but I'm eager to hear from you a bit about the work that you're gonna be talking about and the sort of interdisciplinarity of it and the angle of that that I'm thinking about a lot right now. Yes, thank you. Um, so yes, this is a continuation from an essay that I published two years ago on Antenna that was edit edited by Christina K. Robinson um, called Bloodline, the Power of Music and Memory, which was um, 
rooted in ethnomusicology and I was building a bridge between that and um, psychology, mostly from Carl Jung's writing, his work, and just examining how memory is a part of, or memory and memory and the, and the um, I'm sorry, memory and the relationship between um, the Black presence and art music. And um, giving an interdisciplinary approach with sharing this information because there are so many, um, it's very fragmented. Mm -hmm. And so that allowed me to um, dive into other disciplines to provide a portrait, to also, also um, bring a space for speculative theory and um, merging different practices and having this information be accessible for all people, but especially the descendants, Black people. In that, in that essay, you, you write about sort of first becoming aware of, of the influence of, of Black musicians in the classical music that you hadn't known of, and, and that sort of shifting your understanding of this discipline and your understanding of where you fit in it. Could you talk about that a little more? Yes. Um, so yes, I am a classically trained violinist and composer. I've been playing my whole life, and that entailed me being in deep community with people from Europe, directly from Europe, not white Americans, but people from Europe and um, Asians. And I was always the only one or one of a handful. And I've always had these experiences where I was um, racialized and gendered in this world um, and not really having the confidence to defend myself in certain situations because I did not know my history as a young person. And no one around me really knew our history. I did know some great movers and shakers um, locally in Virginia where I grew up, um, but this information wasn't really too, too accessible and I didn't feel encouraged to dive into this information because the world is, the classical world is very big on preservation. And when we talk about preservation, we know what is being preserved, mm -hmm. which is um, European traditions of classical music and classical music is not exclusive to Europe. There's classical music in every country, every region, there's every culture has their classical music mm -hmm. and their own different system. So for me, I think I started, I had a, this interesting, I had a memory. I thought I made up a memory. I had to be like nine, 10 years old. And I came up with this very elaborate story and I was, um, I thought I was making it up. I wasn't trying to, to um, I just thought it would be interesting. And I said, oh, it would be so interesting if there was a story or a movie, a film about um, a young Black child who um, played the violin and was born in a very um, divisive time in history. And I thought specifically he was a son of an enslaved black woman and i thought that he has the son of a um like um white man who was very um prestigious in his community and with a title and i had this fantasy of this little boy like playing violin and doing all these things 
and his father claiming him and supporting him in his journey. And I think I had this idea that he played for royalty. And it wasn't until years later that I found out that the story that I thought I made up actually happened. Mm. And his name was Joseph Boulon. He was originally from the Caribbean and grew up in France. And all the things that I fantasized about, I was like, oh, this cool story would have happened. Um, and turns out that it did happen. So I started to listen to more of his music and um, reading his story more when I was like 13 or so, but that education wasn't really fostered for me because I had no one to talk to about this. Like, mm-hmm. So it was a lot of it was based in solitude. And whenever I brought it up in European settings, I always felt like I was being annoying or people, you know, there you go again with that black shit type of thing, excuse my language. Um, but I didn't feel supported to share this information because I was not in deep community with other people who are of the black avant-garde, as I call it, um, at that time as a preteen and as like, you know, younger and teenage years and my early 20s. So it didn't really, I didn't really get into community with others like myself until um, Lace and L, which is a string ensemble that we have here. Um, and just other deeper community with Opera Creole and so many other functions. And I actually found community and they gave me my history and they gave me my inheritance and gave me pieces that I, that you cannot find online. Um, pieces that are not available, people that, pieces that are not even recorded. Um, so that took us, um, you know, making it our own and modernizing it. And, but it was interesting because it all started from a memory that I thought I made up. I thought it was a story and it turned out to be something that actually happened. So I started to investigate that relationship more and more, which led to, you know, that essay bloodline and the continuation of that blood flow. Do you feel, I mean, so, you know, in the essay and your work, you're thinking about sort of intergenerational legacies of, of, of memory and intergenerational experiences of it really. And do you feel that that, you know, having this memory that feels like a fantasy that comes from inside of you ties into that directly? Yeah, definitely. Um, for sure. I definitely, because as I was learning more and more, especially, specifically um, Creole folk tunes, mm-hmm. when I started to learn Creole folk tunes more on my own, I just felt like it was so familiar. There was something yeah. so familiar about it. And as I was listening to it, I felt like I already knew the song or the pieces. And um, it was really easy for me to learn them. It was easy for me to assume where it was gonna go harmonically. It, it was instinct, um, honestly, for me. And wanted to observe that phenomena with this context of also ancestral trauma and -hmm. what things have we chosen to forget out of survival Mm -hmm. what things have we erased out of survival so yeah and this is me um remembering all of these things is survival at one point it was about forgetting all of this information to survive and to oppress to impress the white avant-garde um, but then when I broke out of that, um, I knew that it was imperative for me to adjust the default of my understanding of sound and music. 
On that note, I mean, we're thinking about the the talk that you're giving, blood flow, memory, and the racialization of sound and gender. And you know, you have been talking about how you know there is violence in in sound, and there's projection of gender in sound. And and I wonder if you could relate that, uh, you know, then to that to that idea of survival and erasure. Yes. Um, so it's interesting. I've noticed how in my experiences, people have always gendered me femininely because of what I did and what I, which is true. Like, you know, I am a feminine person. I mean, I'm a woman. Um, but it was interesting how my instrument being a violinist was, um, something that it was almost it was almost like an adjective or something that was added because of my femininity. So it was like it was interesting to me how people were gendering an instrument, you know, something that, and it's interesting how they gender it to be feminine when in actuality is in the classical world, the people that are the gatekeepers of this are always old white men. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it was interesting to see what instruments back in the 1800s and beyond, it was interesting for me to learn what instruments were assigned for certain genders. So pretty much every instrument a boy can play. I know a lot of people who are not from the classical world, they think that the flute is very feminine and all these other instruments, um, but men are the gatekeepers of this, of this world. Um, so, I wanted to examine more of like the instruments that women were allowed to play and encouraged to play. And in the book, Black Women in American Bands and Orchestra, written by DeAntoinette Handy, who was a flautist from New Orleans. She has one of my favorite books of all time, which a lot of my information comes from. She um, basically gives documentation and interviews with um, black women of the Black avant-garde, members of the Black avant-garde. Mm -hmm. And um, something that was brought up was how back in the day, women were not encouraged to play anything other than piano or to be a vocalist. And this is all to aspire to a level of femininity. And even when we examine the practice of Black women orchestras, which we do have, we have a history of Black women orchestras in the South, and even those movements were led by men. Men were controlling, or there were a few that were actually founded by women, but a lot of them were founded by men. So I wanted to ex you know, explore that dynamic more. And then also a sound, just recognizing how sound, and I use sound specifically over music, but sound specifically in relation to music has been racialized and gendered. So just by like the language and the terms that we use, um, for example, high art and pop art. Mm -hmm. High art is for classical people and jazz because jazz has been institutionalized. And pop art is like, you know, not as serious music. Mm -hmm. And um, also recognizing that the construct of gender, I mean, I'm sorry, the construct of genres are gendered. The word genre and gender come from mm -hmm. the same root word in Latin, genus, which translates to race. So gender and genre mean the same thing. They look the same. It's the same, and um, they come from the same root word meaning race. 
So examining how like we have this binary of high art and pop art, black and white, but we also understand what I was taught that there were five great genres. And when you look at the five great genres, which are what people call classical, what people call jazz, pop, um, world music and sacred music, you can see the coding with just those terms and seeing what genders and what races are allowed to make certain sounds and what genders and races are allowed to make other sounds and also examining how they use that sound to, um, to be violent. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, this is making me think so much about, you know, in, in my, uh, I don't know, many pursuits, you know, end up thinking about cultural anthropology and the constructions around it. And, you know, I end up thinking about so much about how there's all these categories that end up being very coercive and structuring the way that we understand the world that really suit the interests and perspectives of, you know, colonial, influential, Western European white men. And I never thought about it in terms of genre like that, but it totally checks out and it totally coerces, you know, who, who people perceive as being allowed to make what music and what that music means. I was, you know, I'm just sort mm-hmm. of getting back to you what you're saying, but it's very powerful and very violent, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Could you talk a bit more about um, the, you know, with the, with the, with the talk tomorrow, sort of what, um, yeah, any other key elements <laughs> that, that you would want people to be thinking about going into the, the talk tomorrow and, and, and to be considering? Yeah, I'm going to be giving, there's going to be quite a few listening examples and some film examples examining how in film sound is used to, because um, I'm, a, I'm a film composer and um, I have, I'm extremely aware of um, the codes, mm-hmm. the coding in film. And um, I wanted to invite people into um, a space for critical thinking about what the images they see and what sounds they hear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a few people who think of sound and visuals as separate, mm-hmm. but for me, they are intrinsically the same, like not the same, but they are connected. And when we talk about interdisciplinary theory, I was like, well, what in science, what scientific information tells me that what I see and what I hear are connected. Mm-hmm. And um, I took a course at um, Duke University called Biology, the Biology of Music, or I'm sorry, Music as Biology. Cool. And there was a lot of interesting things in the class. It wasn't exactly what I was looking for, uh-huh. but it did give me a lot of language. And it also it, um, gave me more access to study, even though I'm a composer, I'm studying like neuroscience, biology, and physics, and also having other examples um, like Stefan Alexander, who was um, an astrophysicist and a jazz musician. He has a book called The Jazz of Physics, where he kind of gave me permission to like explore all of these other mediums and saying that creating analogies push the boundaries of knowledge. And it made me see things that I wasn't really aware of before or gave me explanation to what I already know intrinsically. So like even the eyes and the ear are connected in the brain. 
um, through they are they share the same reflex called VOR, which stands for um, vestibular ocular reflex. And because I was reading about that more to understand the phenomena that I have called perfect pitch, mm -hmm. I have perfect pitch. I can listen to sounds. I can listen to any sound and tell you what pitch it is. And but even that, even the whole we racialize people who have perfect pitch. But I understand that racialization because um, there is this connection that people who speak tonal languages, I don't speak a tonal language, but I come from people who spoke tonal languages. Mm. But also that memory of like remembering languages, even though I don't remember the words, people who have, people who are exposed to tonal languages like Mandarin, like um, Igbo and countries and, you know, more humid place, because you have to be in a humid place for um, tonal languages to survive. And they found this connection between, researchers and scientists have found a connection between speaking tonal languages and having perfect pitch. And um, so, yeah, I don't want to get too, too into the presentation, but there are some clips from films that people that are regarded and people are made to respect um, where they turn the glove inside out, essentially, mm -hmm. where they make it seem as, like a, the stereotype that black people are all music, like we're all musicians. <laughs> but yet there are, there's so much film out there that shows that we're not um, valid sources of sound mm -hmm. and that we don't know what we're doing, what we're playing, even though we know that we have influenced every genre. And also thinking about gender, if we can live in a world where we can debate that there are actually more than, you know, there are multiple genres and why can't we live in a world where we can acknowledge that there are multiple genders when they come from the same thing? And even how certain sounds are assigned a certain genre, but we might not always agree with that assignment, even in mm -hmm. pop music. Pop music is very, very broad. Pop music includes R&B, hip hop, um, all of these things. But we think of that as a separate genre when actually R&B music is pop music. Rock and roll is pop music. All of that is, is popular music. That music is accessible for, that's, that, that um, music is accessible for other people. But then you have um, a lot of current musicians wanting to be labeled as pop when people might not immediately name them that. For example, Tyler, the creator. Mm -hmm. People call him a hip hop artist. A lot of black men who are engaged and women who are engaging in that specific um, discipline are not really allowed to claim pop as an identity, even though that is what they are doing. It is not a separate thing. This is all a facet of pop music. So just examining different examples, listening to certain examples, and also through film mm -hmm. with the psychoanalysis of all of these things that we just discussed. <laughs> so it's pretty thick. Yeah, I'm really excited about this talk. I'm thinking about something that you mentioned before before we went on the record and about this sort of, you know, think about pop music and the industry, sort of hegemony of the industry that uh, does this thing that you, the, the way that you put, I forget exactly earlier, was, was erasing influence and inheriting legacies. Um, you yeah, know, and 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 yeah, just just not not giving credit to the complexity of influence that goes into music that happens 
around us today and, and the tremendous implications of that. Yes, yes. Um, so the, the talk, your talk, uh, Blood Flow, Memory and the Racialization of Sound and Gender is going to take place on Thursday, October 1st, which uh, if you're listening to this on the radio is today at noon. And, uh, and I was trying to find the best way to access the Zoom link um, though it is on your Facebook page, Sultana, and I don't know, Denise, if, if there's any particular place up for on the Gulf South to find it. Um. Absolutely. Um, you can find it on um, our Facebook. We have the flyer on Facebook uh, for New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at NOLA Gulf South, and then also on our Instagram, NOLA Gulf South, and also on our Twitter at NOCGS. Or you can email gulfsouth at tulane.edu if you would like for us to email you the direct link. Sultana Isham and Denise Frazier, thank you both so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having us. And The Movement is produced by me, Theo Hilton, for news and views at WTUL New Orleans. You can hear news and views on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Please reach out to us if you have any stories or you want to talk to us for a radio segment. You can reach me at thilton1, that's T-H-I-L-T-O-N-1, 